Um, but it's also a great honor to be among a, a group of believers who love Jesus Christ and love his, his uh, calls to encourage and calls to serve and calls to, uh, to, to go to the battle if we need to be, whatever that might be. Um, if you turn over to the book of First Peter chapter 2, that's kind of where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, Pastor Brian, is, that's not me, um, I think most of you know, but Pastor Brian is out of town. It was kind of a sudden decision by his, on his part. He answered the call the same way veterans answered the call to serve. Uh, Pastor Brian answered the call to serve in Monmouth with the team that went because the, the team was, was, uh, um, was being taken down by the enemy. And, uh, and so he answered that call, and he went to Monmouth to serve with the team up there. And on his way out the door, he says, can you preach? And then without me giving a chance to answer, he said, thank you, and left. Uh, but anyway, I, I welcome all of you here. Thank you for being here with us. It's, it's great to see all of you. Thank you for everybody that's on Facebook or YouTube or whatever live streaming tool you're using to watch this. I appreciate you being part of our service this morning. And uh, so let me just kind of give you a little bit of background about First Peter and why I'm in there. Because I've been working through First Peter in the book of, or in the class of my, our Bible uh, fellowship, uh, the real life class, for about the last four or five weeks now. And you know, uh, even though he asked me to preach and I thought I had another message, I think God really wanted me to just continue first, start studying First Peter. So that's kind of what we're doing. And so I, we're working through that. So it's online. You, if you wanted to pick up where we're at, because we're, we're, we're starting, you know, a second chapter. We've already covered the first chapter. And let me just, let me just kind of give you some things to think about, you know, when it comes to Peter. I don't know how you view Peter. Uh, I know a lot of people are really, you know, just encouraged by Paul and the things that he wrote and the things that he said and the things that he did. We even teach a class in HBI, The Life of Paul. Uh, but Peter, Peter is one of those kind of guys. I mean, Peter was, a, he was the, uh, the, uh, the, the apostle to, to the Jews and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, Peter was compelled to write this letter, though, to the church, to the, the entire body of the church, not just the, to Jews. And so this letter has a lot to say to us as, a, as believers, as Christians. Uh, but a lot of people think about Peter. When they think about Peter, they think about him probably in a negative way. They think, you know, Peter is kind of a knucklehead, a bonehead. Uh, the things that he did, the things he said. Let me give you a real quick list of things that Peter did. Uh, this is just a short list. You can, you can probably think of a lot of other things. But the first thing that I thought about was that Peter was the guy that cut the ear off of the man that was trying to arrest Jesus. I mean, he was, he was quick. And, and, and impulsive. Uh, he desired to go to war with Rome and the Pharisaic rulers. He, you know, he was like, Jesus, let's go to war. I'll get the, I'll get the armory opened up. We'll get, the, we'll get the swords out and we'll go to battle. Uh, he tried directly to, uh, to control and direct the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he was rebuked by it in Matthew chapter 16. Remember that passage where Jesus Christ finally had to say, hey, get thee behind me, you know, stop talking. Uh, and he did not recognize the importance of what was going on at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there, one of the privileged few that could be there, and yet he didn't understand what was happening. In the book of Galatians, we see that Peter is still kind of tied up in, the, in, the, in legalism, in bondage. And, and then his biggest failure, of course, was that he denied Jesus Christ after Jesus was arrested. He denied him. Uh, no, nobody here would do that, I know. But Peter did. And so... Because of these and other blunders, Peter made it, it that he did in his ministry. It was only natural to wonder. I don't know, maybe you don't wonder, but you ever wonder why certain letters are in the, in the Bible? You ever wonder why certain passages are there? Why did God use certain words? Why did he use certain people? 
Why did he use Peter? After Peter was making such a mess of himself in the, in the Gospels, why did God use him to write a letter to the church? And it's important that we understand what that's all about. Um, I believe that God gave him an important task to write two letters, not just one, but two letters to the believers as an encouragement. And believe me, we need encouragement. There's times when we, you and I are going through situations, whether it's a persecution type of thing or it's just suffering. Uh, we need to be encouraged and we need to be strengthened. In fact, I want to mention a couple of names real quick. Uh, be praying for the uh, Newland family at the loss of Mark's uh, brother. Uh, he passed away very recently, and we want to remember the Newland family and, at the loss uh, there. And um, we want to remember uh, Trish Newkirk and you know, dealing with her her uh, uh, blindness in one eye that kind of came on un, un, unexpected and um, still being treated for that. Uh, we want to remember Jim Boyette, uh, who's still in the hospital. I hope he's able to watch. I don't know if he's watching or not. I don't know. But if you're there, Jim, praise the Lord. Um, and so, you know, there's times when we need to be encouraged. There's times when we need to, to be strengthened in the word of God. And Peter writes a letter. And most of you, there's a lot of verses in, in First Peter, especially, that are really verses of encouragement. But we, we don't really study out Peter. So why is he writing the things that he's writing? So that's what I've been doing in the, in the class in real life. And so um, I think that, you know, we talk about following Peter, uh, Paul. When P- Paul said, be you followers of me as I follow Christ. Uh, and we think of our life and our ministry as, as sort of a wreck in you know, ourselves, maybe our personal view of our own self. Um, but like Peter, God took a train wreck of a man named Peter, and he used him as a servant and gave him the opportunity to learn, it, to learn from his errors and become a leader. And that's what God wants to do with every one of us. There's not a person in this room that is worse than Peter. But God used Peter to accomplish great things and to communicate his word to the world. And God can use you. I just want to tell you that right now. That's the first encouragement you need to know is that God will use every person who is willing to be used. And there is not one person who is willing to be used that God says, no, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. God will never say that to you. God didn't say it to Peter, but he, he used Peter. So why did he write this letter? So just a couple of things. So this is a, to thinking that he, he, you know, Peter, at the, as he was growing, he was, the, he was the man that God used to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles. In, in Acts chapter, I think it was in Acts chapter 10, when he, pre, when he preached to Apollos, uh, or Apollos? Cornelius, thank you. Um, and uh, he preached to him and opened the door to the Gentiles with the message of salvation. He's the one that God used to teach us how to learn that liberty is greater than the law. When he lodged at Simon Tanner's house, remember when he, he, met, he had that, that vision and he realized that liberty is more important than law. And, uh, and so now he has something to teach us about enduring persecution and dealing with the suffering. And he wrote this first letter because of the political turmoil that was going on in the, in the, the empire of Rome. Rome, the city of Rome had burned in the, in the year 64 AD. You may know this, you may not, but the city of Rome was burned. Almost the entire city was completely burned. Uh, and some people say Nero, the, the emperor of Rome, was the, was the one that lit the match. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But the problem was he didn't want to be blamed for what happened, and so he blamed the Christians. He blamed the Christians for the burning of the city, uh, that regardless of whether the city was burned, uh, it was totally devastated. And this had religious implications in the city of Rome and throughout the empire. Well, because of why? It meant that their gods had burned also. Their gods had burned. 
their temples had burned. Their, um, their, uh, um, their places of worship, their houses, even with their little idols on the wall, they all burned. You know what that says to them? That their gods wasn't strong enough. And no, so now we have the Christian who has the living God who is strong enough to take care of all kinds of things. Uh, now they're going to be angry with, him, with, with those people. And so his letter is a, is a guide to how we recommend or how we respond to persecution, how we respond to suffering, whatever that suffering may be, whether it's, whether it's physical suffering or medical suffering or, or just, just struggles going on at work, whatever that suffering is, God, God has used Peter to encourage us how to deal with that. Historically, the suffering was due to the accusation that, the, that they had burned the church, but, but it was really because um, they, were, they were being misdirected. So um, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, I'm going to read the first uh, few verses of Second Peter, or First Peter chapter 2, and then uh, we'll get into what's going on here. First Peter chapter 2, chapter two starting in verse 1. We're just going to go down to verse 12 today. It says, Whereof laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Verse 5, Ye also are as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and that believeth on, and that, those that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto, unto you, therefore, which, are, which believe is precious, but unto them which should be disobedient, the stone which is the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble of the, at, the, at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they are appointed. Verse 9, But ye are chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time, which in time, just were, or time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you by the strangers, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. I apologize for stumbling over those words there. Um, Sometimes with my own personal situation going on, and sometimes that happens. Um, okay, so we're we're talking about Peter. We're talking about the reasons that he wrote. I want to give you three things real quick, three three main lessons that we can get out of the book of First Peter. And I want you to kind of see this is what Peter. This is the where Peter is trying to take us is to know that we can deal with things. He says in First Peter chapter two verse nine, which we read, uh, that we have. He's reminding us that suffering is a reminder for our special privilege as God's people. Sometimes we go through things just because you're God's people, and you go through things for that very reason. He said in verse 9 of chapter 2, You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
And then in, later on in that same chapter, in verse 12, he, he reminds us that suffering instructs us to a proper conduct. You know, we, we should learn in the suffering and the struggles, the struggles that we're going through. We should learn, he said, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of his visitation. And in, in chapter 5, as he's concluding this, this letter, he says in chapter 5, verse 10, but the God of all grace, which, who, shall call, call, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. What he's doing there is he's encouraging our steadfastness in the face of persecution. So what we looked at over the last couple of weeks in the real life class was in chapter 1, uh, we, we learned of eight different uh, ways or eight different tools that, that Peter is pointing out to us that we have access to God uh, for the strength that we need to deal with persecution, deal with encouragement. I don't have time to go through those. I can't even, I don't even really have time to, to recite those eight. So I'm just going to encourage you to get online and on the church's website, track down wherever it's found on the listen page, and you can listen to that. We went through that just last week, all eight of them, and I would just encourage you to read them because he's kind of shifting the gears a little bit in chapter 2. Um, in chapter 2, the key verse is, is, is also in verse 12, which we've never read now a couple times. So I won't read it again, but the key verse there is, that it's, what is your conversation? What is your behavior? What is your actions? And so as we read, those, read through those passages there, now I want to kind of break it down, and I will start with verse 1. Verse 1 actually starts with the word in chapter 2. Verse 1 starts with the word, wherefore. And, uh, and I find that word is an interesting word because a lot of times we, we talk about the word, therefore. So a lot of times you'll see the word wherefore, but you'll see a lot, of, a lot of times the word therefore as well. Therefore is a little bit different, though. They don't actually mean the same thing, even though I've heard preachers say that they mean the same thing, just a little bit different. But they never explain what they mean by just a little different. So let me see if I can help, that with, help you with that in here right now. Therefore represents a transition from what was being said to its conclusion. Whatever was said, this is the conclusion. But many times the therefore links a statement to a doctrinal truth. So therefore, whatever, he, whatever the writer just got done saying, therefore, here's the truth of it all. It's kind of a summary statement. Let me give you an example. Look over at Romans chapter 4, verse uh, 15, sorry, well, ver, four, Romans 4, 14 through uh, 16. This is just one of many examples. I just pulled this out of the, out of the Bible as I was studying, trying to examine what is the real difference here. I don't know about you, but that's how I study the Bible. I ask I asked the Bible a lot of questions. What is? Why did you use that word? Why did you say that? Why did you put a paragraph mark here? What, and so on. So I asked, why did you use that word instead of therefore? And so this is what God said. In Romans chapter 14, um, sorry, Romans 4, verse 14. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath for where there no law is, there is no transgression. Then he says in verse 16, therefore it is of faith, that it might be by grace to the end of the promise, might be sure to, the, to all the seed, not to the only which is of the law, but to, all, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see that there? He's connecting the issue of law and faith. And he's saying, because of this, faith is a true doctrine. Faith and grace is truth. So that's just a connection there. That's, 
That's just one simple example, but he didn't use therefore because he's not talking about doctrine at this point in time. What is he talking about? He uses wherefore, uh, wherefore differs in meaning, wherefore links the biblical response to what was just said. What is your response supposed to be based on what he just got done saying? Wherefore indicates that which was stated ahead of, a, of, ahead of the word wherefore. Specific actions and efforts re- are required by you or expected by you or, or suggested, however you want to look at it. And so we're going to look at that uh, in Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 24 and 25. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes at the end, he says in verse 24, for all flesh is grass, is, for all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof faileth, falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. So we see there what Paul is, what, I'm sorry, what Peter is doing is he's taking a truth Comparing, comparing an Old Testament passage to a truth, and then he's saying, what are you going to do about it? And this is kind of how we should always approach the Bible here. So because of the last verse, two verses in chapter 1, Peter says, wherefore, let me give you alternative words that will describe your, your, your behavior in the flesh. And notice that he said some interesting words there. Um, he says, uh, laying aside all malice, but what is malice? Malice, the word malice is actually, um, it means evil or depravity. It is the Greek word. If you take, the, this is, sometimes it's fun to do this. Just look up strong, get the Greek word out. And the Greek word for malice, and if I can pronounce it right, is kakia. Does that sound familiar? Anybody? Yeah, I thought you'd think so. Kakia. The, your, what comes out of your mouth is... Okay, now you're getting it. Now you're understanding. All right, so I didn't want to actually say it. Thank goodness I didn't have to. Okay, so malice. Peter is saying, don't let your words be malice. Why? Because of the truth that he just said in verses 24 and 25. And I will explain more about what those verses mean here in just a moment. Then he says guile. He says, don't let guile be in your, in your behavior either, fraud or deceit. And then he says hypocrisy. And actually, the hypocrisies with plural. And so there's a several different kinds of hypocrisy. First off, hypocrisy is a form of idolatry which keeps you from being wholehearted with the Lord or with others. You know, so we know when people are being hypocritical. We can usually tell. Uh, the prophet Isaiah writes a lot denouncing religious hypocrisy. And false prophecy is another form of hypocrisy that basically says that the thing that is pleasing is not the thing that is true. The thing that is pleasing is not always true. Jesus Christ railed on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And then Peter goes on, he says, envy. And envy is, is, the, is, is translated as malignant and jealous, incapable of good, the opposite of zeal. So zeal is a positive, a positive emotional behavior that you have where I'm, I'm, I'm driven to do something for the Lord because of what the Lord has said. That's zeal. Envy is the opposite of zeal. And then the last thing he says, evil speaking. That's pretty, pretty obvious, but it means blasphemy, railing, condemnation, blame. And so the point is this. The, the wherefore in verse 1 points us back to the incorruptible and enduring word of God 
which he said in verse 25, that replaces the words and actions that tempt the world, because those kinds of behaviors, they tempt the world to bring us suffering through persecution and condemnation. Because your behavior is vile. Your behavior is, is envious. Your behavior is, is malice. Your behavior is all of these things that Peter says, stop doing that. Replace what you're doing with what he said in verses 24 and 25. And so let me do verse 24 when he quoted. I'll probably get to this again in one more time, but before I don't do it, let me just say Peter's reference in um, verse 24, all flesh is grass and all glory of man is the flower of the grass. Grass withers. Everybody knows that. Grass dies and withers. Uh, and uh, what he is saying is your flesh, don't be in the flesh because your flesh is just going to die and wither as well as is in the same way. Okay, so the word itself... Uh, the word, the God's word in verse 25, is one of those eight uh, tools that I mentioned that we talked about in, ch- in chapter 1 last week. Um, and so this is just one of them, just as an example. The word is a tool that you can use to deal with persecution and suffering that you're going through, whatever that suffering is, whatever it's for. He said, uh, he looked at uh, Psalm chapter 119, verse 28. Psalm 119, 28 says, My soul melteth for heaviness. Strengthen thou me according unto thy word using the word to get strength, using the word to get encouragement, using the word to deal with whatever's going on in your life so that whatever's happening in your life, it's okay because we have the word. We have the word. Then he says something that's pretty common or pretty familiar in verses 2 and 3 of the second chapter. He says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be... Ye have tasted that the Lord that the word that the Lord is gracious. So, um, so what do you need to be strengthened? You need the Word of God, of course. That's why he starts talking about that, and he pictures for us a newborn baby, uh, and he tells us that we that we should desire milk. We should thirst for the genuine milk of the Word of God, uh, that's been revealed to us as the truth of God. Now Peter doesn't say he doesn't tell us in this passage. He doesn't say read the word. He doesn't say read the word. Paul said read the word in 1 Timothy. He doesn't tell us to study the word either. Paul tells us also in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to study. Paul or Peter doesn't tell us to meditate on the word as Joshua did in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. Peter doesn't tell us to teach the word either. As he, as he said to Timothy, as Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.11, Peter doesn't say preach the word either. Peter doesn't say search the word. Peter doesn't say hide the word. Aren't those all things we're supposed to be doing? But let me just say this. What, Paul, what Peter is doing is he's going one step deeper into all of those things. Look at what it says there. As, ver- as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. What, Paul, what Peter is telling us you, you can't do any of those other things. You can't read the word. You can't study the word. You can't meditate or teach or preach or any of that kind of stuff until you have a desire for it. You have to desire the word of God. And if you don't desire the word of God, you know what you're going to do? You're going to watch TV instead of sitting down and reading. You're going you're gonna to go out and do something else instead of taking the time to study out a passage and understand why God is saying what he's saying. You're not going to do it because you don't desire it. And he says, desire it. Now, when Peter speaks of a baby desiring milk of the word, he gives us a very good analogy. 
a very good illustration, a picture of desiring the word. But let me point something out that maybe you haven't really thought about before ever. We usually compare this passage of newborn believers to this newborn babe, right? We talk about a newborn believer, uh, how, they should, how they're going to be fed the milk of the word of God through discipleship one and so on. But look at what he's actually saying. And so it's a common thing to look at that verse that way, but I think he's, do, he's saying something else. He's not making a distinction between the milk of the word and the meat of the word. Now that, Paul did that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. He said, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye, are ye able. So yeah, there's, a, there's a, a little bit of a distinction between milk of the word and meat of the word, but that's not what Peter is talking about. What Peter is giving this analogy for, what he's, what he's pointing out here is, is the, what the problem was with Corinth. The, the Corinthian church, when Paul wrote that in, in 1 Corinthians 3, 2, they did not have a desire for the word. Everything that was going on in the Corinthian church was, was happening, all of the negativity, all of the sin, all of the, the, the wrong things that were happening in Corinth were happening because nobody in the church desired the word. They wouldn't take the word for what it said and make it a change in their life. They didn't desire it. What Peter is talking about here, he's not talking about any sort of level of doctrine or maturity in your growth. He's not just talking about growth maturity here. Peter, he's talking about what your desire for the word should look like. He's taking the analogy of a baby. Think about a baby. If, what does a baby do when they want their milk? They cry. They cry out for the milk. What do they, they reach for it. They grab for it. They're, 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 they're desiring it. They want it. They long for that milk. They long for that milk. And that shows us just how strongly a baby wants the milk. Right? I mean, you know, how long are you going to let the baby cry? As soon as you get the bottle, you can guess or whatever, however you're feeding that baby, that's what you're going to do. You're going to feed that baby as quickly as you can. If you desired the word, that's how fast you want the word. And that's why Peter is giving us an example here, this analogy of this, of this baby. What we should be talking about is your desire for the word, what it should look like. And what we should get from Peter's example is that the same baby longs for milk, crying for it, grabbing for it. It's in, oh, that shows us how we should desire the word. The point is this. Just as strongly desire and cry out for the word of God in order for you to grow. You want to deal with problems that are going on in your life, whatever they are. Desire God show you in his word how to deal with that problem, how to deal with that circumstance. You know, we tell people, you, you know, all the answers are in the Bible. And everybody kind of shrugs their shoulders and says, yeah, but I don't know how to get to them. Desire it. God will get you there. Physical birth brings a little one into the world, and a great need for that little one is defeating on milk. But, and so is our relationship with God. We are to be so highly minded, or so singly minded, sorry, as, the, as to crave with a passion the word of God. And that craving should never end. No matter how mature you are as a Christian, no matter how many years you've been a Christian, no matter how much discipleship you've done, no matter how many people you've discipled, doesn't matter. You still should always, always desire the word of God. Because every time you study the Bible, if you've been in the Bible for any length of time, you find out, oh, I missed that part the last time I studied this. And God will give you something new every single time. Because you're desiring, God, show me something new. We never pray to God, oh, God, show me the same thing you showed me last year. We never do that. But sometimes we think, well, I studied it last year. I don't need to study it this year. That's not true. You need to desire the word of God all the time. And then he goes into chapter Two verses four to eight, talking about the protective power of the living stone. So he goes from from a, a baby to a stone, 
And starting in verse 8, he says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also are living as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer us, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion and Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which is the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the, at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were appointed. Okay, so that's a lot. It's a big mouthful. But here, what, he's, what Peter's wanting you to understand at this is that we have access to the strength of the spoken word, and we have access to the strength of the living word, which is a greater and, more, and stronger than the greatest of any stone. Now, um, I know stones are, well, I think you all know stones are pretty strong. They're, they're solid, There's, and we use stones for a lot of different reasons, decoration, uh, uh, building things, whatever. But, but uh, what Peter is trying to tell us is that, that the Word of God is stronger than any just regular stone. And he uses an expression here before we... Um, let, me, let me pause here for just a second. Um, so he says, to whom coming... So that expression, I want to explain that real quick. To whom coming... The context for this is, is back in verse 3... The words to whom, that's, that is, he's, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here from verse 3. We see he's pointing back to Jesus Christ. And, um, and then he says, coming, to whom coming? He's not talking about Jesus Christ coming. He says, somebody is coming to Jesus Christ. The coming are those who have tasted the graciousness of the Lord in salvation and have received him as salvation. And he says, he's coming. And when he used a phrase, Peter wrote, used a phrase called a living stone. I don't know how many of you have ever met a stone that's alive. I haven't. And I don't think we'd ever really have come to somebody. We, normally, we describe a stone um, or something like a stone. We, it's more common to say that it's stone dead, not, li- not a living stone. A stone has no life, but this stone does. The, the one that Peter's talking about does have life. This stone is the perfect stone that becomes the cornerstone of the, of the church and the believer. And we'll talk about the cornerstone here in a few minutes. It's not just a stone. It's a living stone. We're coming to a living stone because we believe in what Jesus Christ is, about who he is, to whom we came because we believed, and he is a living stone. We do not normally describe a stone as living, but Peter did. We never talk about a living stone. Uh, we always talk, but Peter talks about a living stone because he wants you to know that this stone is special. It's unique. It's unlike any created stone. It's not a created stone. It is a living stone. It's always been alive. It's always been there. This stone is precious in God's sight. As far as God is concerned, this is the most precious thing that he's, that he, that is available to any one of us. Uh, just, he says it's a precious stone just as, Jesus, as the blood of Jesus Christ is precious, which Peter wrote about in First Peter chapter 1, verse 19, which is the only place you see the words precious blood mentioned in the New Testament, is when Peter wrote that. And he's saying that that, that that living stone is chosen by God and precious in God's sight. But why does he call it a living stone? 
What is the purpose of him calling it a living stone? Couldn't he still have just called it a stone? There was a reason, though, he he just chose to, to call it a stone. Let me give you a couple of reasons. First, when Peter wrote these verses, he was probably remembering a conversation that he had with Jesus Christ back in Matthew chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 14. So flip over there real quick. Um, Matthew chapter 16. Maybe some of you already remember that passage that, that Jesus Christ and him have. In Matthew chapter 16, and we'll start in verse 15. Well, let's do verse 14. And they said, some say that unto you... And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he looks at them in verse 15. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter, verse 16, answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. He's probably remembering that conversation. Because that's an important conversation about what this is all about, about this stone that he's mentioning here. Peter understands now that Jesus, at that conversation in, in, in Matthew, he didn't really realize what he was saying. And you know, there's actually some denominational churches out there that take this passage of Scripture in Matthew and misapply it for wrong doctrinal teaching. And I want to say who that is. You probably already know. Uh, the, the church that claims that Peter was the uh, the foundation of the church. He's not. Jesus Christ is. That's what Jesus Christ is saying here. And I'll explain what I mean in just a minute. And so Peter understands that Jesus was not, he was speaking of himself as this rock. When he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So he's talking about him. This rock is himself. He's not talking about Peter being the rock. The second thing that he, Peter remembered is that Isaiah and David wrote of this, of this stone as well. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, he remembers that, that Isaiah wrote, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And he remembered what David wrote in, in the book of Psalms in chapter 118, verse 22. It says, The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. And Peter is putting all of this stuff together, and he's remembering, he's, he's talking about a living stone. Jesus Christ was talking about a living stone. Jesus Christ wasn't talking about me. And so the third thing that he wants you to understand is that this, uh, that he also wants you to know that this living stone is your foundation and your protection and no circumstance can overcome your rock. Nobody, nothing, nothing in the world can overcome your rock. Don't leave your rock. Too many people leave the rock. They're still saved, but they've left the rock. They've left that protection. They've left that support. They've left that structure that's there that, that, um, that God has given to us. He's chosen it for a reason, and, he's, and it's precious to God. And so this stone lives because it is Christ, and Christ lives because he rose from the dead. That's why it's living, because he rose from the dead. He is that living stone. He is alive from the dead and the giver of life to all who believe. Look over at Luke chapter 6 for just a minute. Luke chapter 6, verse 48 and 49. Luke chapter 6, verse 48 and 
Peter, or I'm sorry, Jesus is again, he's, he's speaking and he's teaching and he says, he that, he, oh, I'm going to back up to verse 47. Whosoever cometh to me and beareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built his house and house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood rose, the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. So for those who disallow, he's talking about those who are disallowing uh, this building. They disallow to build their house on anything like a foundation of of a rock. And their house is ruined. And the word for stone in, in this passage, in Peter's passage, is the word lithos, which speaks of a stone used in a building. It's the same word that he would use as a building stone. And, you know, I was looking around at some of the buildings yesterday as we were driving through Kansas City. And there's not a whole lot of buildings that are built today that are built like buildings were built you know, 100 years, 150 years ago out of stone. A granite building. We, nobody builds granite buildings anymore. We might slap a, a granite, granite slab on the side of the building and call it a stone building, but that's not what I'm talking about, and that is not what God is talking about. God is talking about the entire stone built out of living stones. and li- Well, actually, he used the word lively stones, so there's a difference between the living stone and the lively stone. One of the things that's interesting about these stones that he's referring to, in this, even like the temple, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, um, it was not built with mortar. It wasn't, it wasn't glued together with cement. It fit. The stones fit perfectly, hooked together in a way that they could not be taken apart uh, without some really hard work. Um, he says in verses 5 and 6, and he also talks about the same type of thing in verses 9 to 10, so I'm not going to read both of those, but in 5 and 6, Verse 5, he says, You also are lively stones, built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, that be, um, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So this spiritual house that, that Peter is talking about He's talking about the church. He's talking about the building of the church. And, you know, Paul talks about each one of us being fitly joined together as part of the church. And we, are, we all require each other to build the church that God wants us to build. Without each one, if you want to know why you need to come to church, why don't you want to be involved in church right there? Because God needs you, because you're going to be a key portion of the, of the building that he's building. So... Um, and he used the word lively, which is different than the word living, because the living stone is a special stone. You are a lively stone. Uh, every believer becomes a, uh, comes to the living stone, but you become a lively stone uh, when you do that. And it means to be especially active in the activity of being a holy priesthood, to be active, to be lively. You know, you get the idea, of, you know, we talk about people that are maybe jumping up and down like kids, jumping on the bed you know, jumping from one bed to the next or jumping in a pool. They're lively, they're active, they're, they're movement, they're doing things. And God says that's what he wants for you. He wants you to be active. He'd be jumping up and down and making a, making a scene if you need to to get people to pay attention to God. But actually what he's looking for is people who are going to serve and as, a, as part of the priesthood. So 
when he talks about the priesthood and the sacrifices, he's not talking about the stuff that was in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a quick rundown of some of the sacrifices that God's looking for you to do. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul rejoices in knowing that his life is a sacrifice to God. So our life, just our life in general, ought to be a sacrifice to God. What are we giving to God or what are we, what are we doing for God in our daily life? In Philippians chapter 4, eight, 4 verse 18, um, the support of the body of Christ. So your sacrifice in supporting the body of Christ is, is, is as important as anybody else's supporting of the body of Christ. That's why I said earlier that you as a, as a lively stone are part of the joining of the, together of one to the other to build the house that God wants to build. In Romans, and I think everybody's familiar with Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says that, that you should give your body. Give your body, right? I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. And then in Hebrews 13, 15, you know what? Our praise and our fruit is, uh, and the fruit of our lips is, is a sacrifice to God, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. And then in Psalm chapter 141, verse 2, our prayers are a sacrifice. You know, it's an, you don't think too much about prayers being sacrificed, but when you pray, you're sacrificed. That is a sacrifice to God. And that's why we should pray, if no other, if for no other reason. And so Peter returns us back to Isaiah 28, which I read a couple times, as a reminder to all the truth of God's intention to establish the church upon his son. And it would not just be a living stone, but it would be a chief cornerstone as well. A living stone became a chief cornerstone. Now, in verses 7 and 8, he shifts gears a little bit. Um, and this is interesting about how Paul wrote his letter. He would, he would write about the, 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 um, the persecution, the suffering, the things that are going on negative, and how to respond to it. And then he would talk about some more and how to respond to that and some more and how to respond to that. And that's kind of what he's doing here. And he goes to verses 7 and 8. He says, Unto you, therefore, which believe... He is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they are appointed. So Peter does, he does a lot of comparing and contrasting in this passage, and really throughout the whole, the whole letter. Um, and um, verses 5 and 6, and verses 9 and 10 go together, while verses 7 and 8, are, are distinguishing between the two different things. So he goes five and six, seven and eight is, a, is a, uh, those that are disallowing uh, what God is doing. And in verse nine and 10, he comes back together with um, serving. And so those who disallow the living stone, in verse, living stone in verse seven are those spoken of in verse four. When he mentioned that in verse four, he talked about the same type of thing, about those who disallowed, um, disallowed God. The word disallowed, it means to be rejected or disapproved of the way the Pharisees disapproved of the ministry of Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus Christ was on the, on the earth in his ministry with, the, with dealing with the Pharisees and everything, they were disallowing. They were disapproving of everything that he said and did. They were disallowing him. Disallowed indeed of men refers to those who have not tasted the graces of the Lord. Basically, he's talking about the lost world, that world that is lost, whether they're Gentile or whoever they are. They're they're the lost world. For those who disbelieve that have rejected the stone, it becomes to them a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And as the stone is disallowed or rejected so too often, and this is the point that Peter wants everybody to realize, 
they may be dis, they may be disallowing Jesus, but in doing so, they're disallowing God. They're saying, God, no. No Jesus, no God. We don't want either one of them. In other words, as the stone is rejected, God, having made Christ the cornerstone of all that his spiritual truth rests on, then truth itself is rejected. And that is what's happening. Those that are disallowing are rejecting even the truth that you represent. In whatever way people may regard this stone, there is, one, there is in fact, no other hope of heaven for them other than that which is founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. So if people are not saved by him, he becomes to them a stumbling, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So let me just kind of wrap up this thing here, the last couple of verses. I just want to use those as a conclusionary point here. He says in verse 11 and 12, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Now that, that, that fleshly lust ties back to what he said in verse 1, which was connected to verse 24 and 25. In verse 24 and 25 was about the fleshly grass and how that withers away, and it represented your flesh. And now Peter is telling us in this verse here, in verse 11, to abstain from fleshly lusts. And what would that be? That would be those behaviors that we talked about. That would be the things that, that we should re- resist, that, uh, that Greek word, kakia. Don't let your life look like that or smell like that or act like that. Now, you may not feel strengthened today, but I'm sure that Christ uh, can help you because he helped the Christians in 64 AD. Um, I'm sure they felt the same way you may feel today, being under persecution, under some sort of suffering. And he goes on uh, and, he, and he continues in this, in this verse. Uh, he says in verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. So did you see the difference here? He says, abstain from fleshly lust, have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Why? That whereas they may speak against you as evildoers, which many times that happens, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Your behavior, is it, is it fleshly lust or is it, a, is it the right kind of conversation? In verses 2 and 3, remember, he gave us a desire to consume the word. That's what we should do as well. We should consume the world, the word. After we get rid of the fleshly behavior, we consume the word. Why do we consume the word? So it changes our tone of voice. It changes our behavior. It changes our conversation. And then, in, then we talked about the strength that comes from the spiritual house in verses 4 to 8 and that, that, that builds on the unity of the, lovely, of the lively stone stabilized by the rock that is the living stone. You know, that's what a cornerstone does, right? I don't know if we, I'm not a construction guy. I don't know if we actually build houses or buildings with with a cornerstone. I don't know, someplace in the building, there's got to be something that's like the structural foundation of the building. I'm just assuming that because we always talk about cornerstones. But in a a building that's made of stone, there is a cornerstone. And it locks everything into place. And God says uh, that, that your strength comes from that cornerstone and your strength helps others to be strong, strengthened as well on the cornerstone. Your response to the Gentiles, which is a picture of the lost world, uh, to those who have dis- disallowed God have a direct impact on the lost world. Your behavior has a direct impact on the lost world. You may not think so, but I'm telling you it does. If we don't look like Christians, we don't act like Christians, we don't talk like and sound like a Christian, 
they're not going to believe you're a Christian. Peter says that the world's witness of our good works will turn the world from disallowing of God to the glorifying of him. That's what we want, right? He says that at the end of verse 12, I think. Um, that, That they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's what we want people to do. We want people to glorify God, not for our sake, and really not even for God's sake. Although God will get the glory out of their life one way or the other. But we're not looking for them to glorify God. We're looking for them to be saved. That will glorify God as well. So it's up to the lively stones of the church to show the evildoers and the disallowers what needs to be done, how to behave, how to act. And that should guide you in how to deal with persecution, how to deal with suffering. Because those are the times when we don't act like Christians. Those are the times when we are struggling so bad that we just don't want to be a Christian right now. Whatever it is, whether it's cancer, whether it's uh, persecution at work, whether people are making fun of you, or your family is just all over you because you're a believer, um, don't go there. Don't be like that. Um, let them see your, your good works, your good words. Let them hear those good words. Okay, so um, we're about out of time. I think I'm all about on time, I think. Anyway. Um, all right, so um, what I want to do for a minute, I just want you, I want you to think about what we've talked about. I want you to think about what this passage is saying, and what I'd like for you to do is everybody just close your eyes, and let's go to prayer. I want to give everybody, anybody in this room, a chance to, um, to maybe decide, am I part of this, this, this building that is fitly joined together? Am I part of it? Am I a, living, a, a lively stone? And if I'm not, then I can't be part of the living stone. So what do you need to do? It's real simple. You just need to um, come forward uh, and, and accept Christ as your Savior. And so we've got a couple of people who will be up here. Uh, is there anybody in this room that does not know that they are part of this stone? And they want to be a part of the stone. They want to be saved. Anybody at all? Just raise your hand. We'll get somebody to come to you. And we got a couple of people over here. Praise the Lord. Um, and so, Richard, you see that? Um, so we're going to come to you, and we're going to have him talk to you and just kind of work through the passage of Scripture, okay? So uh, anybody else? Anybody else that would like to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? They'd like to be a part of this stone. They'd like to be a part of, of this, this, this uh, cornerstone and this living stone this, and that is like no other stone in the world. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for everything that has been said and been done. We just praise you for it. We just ask now, Lord,